We're going to continue in our study through the Bible in one year. This is lesson number two. We're going to continue with Abraham, move through Isaac and meet Jacob, and some very significant incidences. The Apostle Paul writes an interesting thing in, in, in his letter to the Philippian church in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm confident of this thing, that God who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. The very thing that Paul writes to the Philippian church and to all of us is the same thing that I want to speak to you about tonight. The very work that God has begun, he's going to bring to completion. The whole Bible is the story and the account of God bringing his work to completion. You remember, and we looked last week, man had fallen. He was sinful. He has a problem, a real severe problem. It's called death. Not just physical death, but also eternal death. But God embarks upon a program to deliver man from that and that program is played out through all of Scripture. We followed the Lord's work until a man was called by the name of Abraham. Abraham is going to be the father of Israel. Indeed, the father of all true believers. All people who are of the faith of Abraham. God comes and makes him promises. And then we begin to follow after Abraham. We left off last week in chapter 17 when uh, God had instructed Abraham regarding circumcision as a sign of the covenant that God had made with him. And then the Lord goes up from him. We pick it up again when the Lord comes back to visit Abraham, but he comes back to visit in a very remarkable way. He comes with two angels and these three persons. They look like persons. They come and visit Abraham in chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Now, Abraham apparently doesn't realize it's the Lord, and he doesn't realize these are angels. He feels and believes probably that they're just normal visitors, normal people coming through, and he is going to extend what is traditional oriental hospitality, welcomes them, puts on a great feast for them, um, shows them a great deal of hospitality. And then we find out that as he's standing, observing them eat the meal in uh, verses 9 through 15, all of a sudden, they turn to him and they say, where is your wife, Sarah? Now, this is strange. How would they know he was married? And how would they know his wife's name is Sarah? Well, he says, they're in the tent. Then the Lord speaks to him and says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So God is reiterating his promise to Abraham, and he does so about seven or eight times throughout this, this section that Sarah is going to have a son, or indeed that Abraham will be blessed with offspring. Now remember up to this point, they are absolutely barren of children. They have no children. Abraham at this point is 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. They don't have any kids. And yet God has promised to bless them. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the, uh, to the tent, which uh, was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already, well, already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So we're told that Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Now she laughs. If you look back in chapter 17, in verse 17, 
God has, uh, has reasserted to Abraham that, that uh, he would have a son and that Sarah would be the mother of this son. And Abraham laughs. I think there's a difference between the reason he laughs and the reason uh, Sarah laughs. I think Abraham, he just flat falls down on the ground and laughs, I think, out of astonishment and joy. But Sarah laughs out of unbelief. And so... God's got to strengthen her faith if, in fact, she is going to be the mother of this miraculous son, Isaac. And so God's got to strengthen her faith, and he does so in this passage. So she's laughing, and then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Now, now remember, she's saying this to herself. No one heard her. But God understands what's in her heart. So he says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child that, now that I'm old? And the Lord goes on and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Even this, he says, I can do. That's an astounding statement. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We face all manner of things that we think are just absolutely impossible. And indeed, Jesus says, with men, these things are impossible, but with the Lord, all things are possible. We have a God that's just absolutely wonderful. One of the men from the, earlier this evening asked me a question and talked to me. He was reading ahead and was reading about the boundaries that God had set forth for Israel that the kingdom of Israel would occupy. And it's interesting, if you study the Old Testament, you see that Israel never occupied their boundaries. They never did. They never fulfilled the calling that God had for them. Just as you and I never really fulfill the calling that God has for us. He's given us tremendous uh, territory to occupy. But we never do fully occupy it. And I'm convinced we don't do it because I think that we think it's too hard. And it is too hard, but nothing is too hard for the Lord. We need to be men and women who are heroes of faith. Heroes of faith. And that's why we have these examples written down for us. So the Lord says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, I will return to you at an appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. Now, I mean, she's hearing this conversation outside the tent. She says, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, yes, you did laugh. Now, I wonder if there's a little perturbation in his speaking to her. I wonder if the Lord was a bit perturbed with her. If he was, he's certainly not as perturbed as he's going to be with Sodom and Gomorrah in just a few moments. Now, these three people come and visit Abraham for three reasons. I'm convinced of this. One, to reaffirm God's promise to Abraham. Two, to strengthen Sarah's faith. And three, to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. I think those are the three reasons why they come, and they come in this particular form. Now we look next to the, the, the account that, that uh, chronicles the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and I think it's very interesting because... With the announcement of Isaac's birth, now Isaac is going to be the son of the promise. He's going to be the next link in the chain, of the, that messianic chain from which is going to be the solution to man's problems. 
But it's very interesting that you've got linked up to the announcement of the birth of Isaac, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why is that? Well, I think that Sodom and Gomorrah represent everything that, that we know about the world headed for destruction. All the godlessness, that represents the, uh, the problem, if you will. Isaac represents the solution to the problem, the Messiah. And so Sodom and Gomorrah is like the world in a microcosm. Gotten so rebellious, uh, gotten so defiled that it's worth nothing except to be destroyed and thrown on the hash heap. And that's exactly what's going to happen to the world at the end of time. But you've got the promise of God's grace through Isaac. God wants to save. And Isaac is a sign of that. And so we have this in, in verses 16 through 21. Um, God wants to share with Abraham. He's going to tell Abraham what he's about to do because they're close. Abraham is a friend of God, and so God's not going to hide anything from Abraham. And also, it gives Abraham an opportunity to fulfill his calling to be a blessing on all the other nations. And the way he begins to fulfill that calling is by interceding for the righteous, in effect, interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, too. God, you won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 50 righteous people. You're not going to destroy the righteous with the unjust, are you? And so he goes down and he, he begins to, to converse with God. He begins to bargain with God, if you will, however you want to address that. He, just, he goes right to the Lord and he says, Lord, if there are 50 righteous, would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? No, if there are 50 righteous, I won't. Lord, if, how about if there's 40? No, I won't destroy it even if there's 40. How about 30? No, not even if there's 30. How about 20? And then, of course, you know, they stop at 10 and the Lord ends the conversation at that point. I think that's instructive because Abraham is our model. He's the model for Israel, and he's the model for the church, all true believers. What's he a model for? He's a model for us in terms that we're to make a difference in the culture we live in with our lifestyles, our words. Israel was given the commission to influence all, those, all the nations around them. They were to be a light in the darkness. And so Abraham has this opportunity to intercede. And with that, when he does that, he passes on a heritage not only to Israel, but also to the church. You and I have an opportunity and a responsibility to intercede for the world around us. We're praying now uh, for this whole conflagration that, that will be occurring. Hopefully it will not occur in the Middle East praying and asking God to stay the destruction. And so we have this responsibility of, of saving the world, being used by God to intercede and save the world. And so Abraham does this. Now we find that the Lord leaves Abraham, and in chapter 19, the two angels now go on down to Sodom. Now they enter the city, and Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, has been living in this city. He likes the city life. And in fact, he's one of the uh, apparent leaders of the city because he says he's in the city gate. It's like he's a member of the city council, if you will. So these guys enter the city. Lot recognizes them that they're new. And he says, uh, come to my house. 
spend the night in my house. They say, no, 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 we'll stay in the, in the square. We'll sleep outside. It's okay for us. He says, no, no, you don't want to sleep outside. It's not healthy for you. So they, they agree. He prepares a meal for them. He takes them in. And in, from verses 4 to 11, we read this account. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet with them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do uh, what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Nice guy, huh? <laughs> no. Ladies, how would you like to have a, a father like Lot? Some women have had a father like Lot. Do you know that? Well, why is God going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Because of the homosexuality? No. Not just because of homosexuality. God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because it has absolutely, absolutely become totally degraded. I mean, there's, there's, there's idolatry. When you're involved in immorality, you're involved in immorality because you're first an idolater. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. You're first an idolater, then you're involved in immorality. Everything that was an abomination to the Lord was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, everything that was an abomination to the Lord, they had sunk so low, their, their worship practices were sacrificing babies, all sorts of heinous kinds of things. Homosexuality was just one aspect, a uh, reflection of a degraded society. In um, Leviticus chapter 18, you see uh, references to all the kinds of things that were despicable to the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and he tells Israel that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their prideful, haughty ways. And pride comes before the fall, doesn't it? He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their prideful, haughty ways. They don't need God. They're going to be independent of God. They don't want to have anything to do with God. And you know what kind of life that leads to. And so just worthy to be destroyed. So the angels tell him what they're about to do. And uh, if you look over at chapters 19, verses 15 through 17, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. Now I want you to notice the next three words. What are they? When he what? It doesn't say the Lot said, Oh, yeah, right, let's go, let's get out of here. Does it? No, it says he hesitated. Lot liked city life. I mean, he'd, he'd grown accustomed to being in that town. I mean, he didn't like it. If you read some of the other accounts, Peter and so forth, they say the Lot was righteous, despising all the wicked and evil. But there was something about city life he liked because he hesitated. When God says to move, we ought to what? Move. The tragedy is that most of us hesitate. Most of us just kind of sit down and say, well, I don't know. I like kind of being in my comfort zone. But you see, you've got to know destruction is coming. Is it not? 
and, and not just in terms of end times. Destruction is coming. When God says, when he says in his word to do something, and we don't do it, we're setting ourselves up for problems down the road. We're setting ourselves up for problems. And God reveals things to us. As you read and study his word, he speaks to your heart. He shows you things. He speaks to you, and, you, and he says, now, now I want you to do something. And if you don't do it, if you hesitate, then you're setting yourself up for some real problems. So Lot hesitates. But they say to him, now look at this. They grabbed his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. Could you see this? Come on. They're not about to let these guys stay in the city. They just dragged them out of the city. Why is it that so many of us seem to have to be dragged to safety? How many people in this room came into the kingdom of God and, and you came in with rounded heels <laughs> being dragged in? There's fire coming. There's, there's judgment coming. And we just hesitate. And we wonder. And we think, well, I don't know. But that's the reality of it. And so they, the angels say to him, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 24, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says the same thing. He says, when you see... When you see uh, Jerusalem under siege, what? Flee to the mountains. Don't stop. Don't just go halfway. The same thing is true for us. When you see sin, when it raises its head, when temptation comes, flee to the mountains. Don't just go halfway. We're told, though, that when Sodom was destroyed... In verse 26, Lot's wife, what? Looked back. She looked back. We put our hand to the plow, we don't look back. Don't look back out of curiosity. Don't look back longingly. Don't be like Israel, always looking back to Egypt, saying, oh, why did you bring us out here? You put your hand to the plow, you press on, you don't quit. We have a goal in mind, do we not? You see, old things have passed away, the Bible says. When you become a Christian, old things have passed away. You have nothing to do with the old way of life. The new has come. And it's, our, it's a challenge to us to embrace that which is new. And if you don't, if you stop, if you hesitate, or if you look back, you're going to pay a heavy price. Have you found that to be true? Sure. So there's some very, very contemporary lessons for us here. Anyway, Lot escapes with his two daughters. He doesn't flee to the mountains. He goes halfway. He says, let me just stop in this little city. And the angels allow it. And he's going to pay a price for that. He finds himself in incestuous relationships with two daughters. And they, they are the, the results are, are, are the two nations of Moab and, and the Ammonite peoples who are going to be a real thorn in the sight of Israel later on. You may not suffer immediately the consequences of your choices, but succeeding generations may. The Bible says that the sins of the father are visited to the third and the fourth generation. And so it's incumbent upon us to see that God is very serious. He wants to bless us, but he can only bless us if we engage what he says, if we engage his design, just like Lot. Leave. 
Flee. Get out of that environment. You have nothing to do with that environment. And pursue righteousness. And don't settle for halfway. Don't settle for halfway. We have far too many halfway Christians. Far too many people who are halfway committed. And that's a, just an absolute blight on the church. Over in chapter 21, we, we see recorded the birth of Isaac. The son, the year later now, that God had promised Abraham and Isaac. It's a year later now. Isaac is born in verses 1 through 5. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. So you find Abraham doing exactly what God says. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. I mean, they'll be hysterical when they hear, here I am, 90 years old, and I have given birth because there's no other geriatric couples having kids. (laughs) in the ancient Near East, nor even today. I'm a little ringy, Steve. Can you fix that for me, please? She added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Isn't that wonderful? Can you see those two little old dears? <laughs> Praise God. Wonderful. So, so Isaac now is born. Isaac is the child of the promise. He's the one that they've waited 25 years for. And they've been required to walk by faith, to trust in the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. No. And so finally the son is born that they have waited so long for. Now we we continue on in chapter 8. And we see that God is going to require Abraham to send his older son Ishmael away. Now Hagar has been creating a few problems here for Sarah. Some of you gals could probably understand this. Would you like another woman in the house? <laughs> no, probably not. And uh, Ishmael has grown up. He's about 13 to 15 years old now. And uh, he's making fun of little Isaac. And so Sarah says, send them away. Well, Abraham doesn't want to send away because Abraham, you see, has really doted on this kid for 15 years. For a long time, he believed that Ishmael was going to be the son of the promise. And now all of a sudden, Isaac's on the scene. What's he going to do with Ishmael? So God says, send him away, like Sarah said. Because Ishmael is going to get in the way and cause some real problems in the house if, God, if, if Abraham doesn't take that responsibility and send them away. Now, it seems kind of harsh. And so Abraham, we're told, is greatly distressed because of his son. But God promises him in his grace to provide for and to take care of Ishmael. God is always gracious. He's always gracious. And so he consoles Abraham about that. And you can read about that in the next part of chapter 21. We come to chapter 22, and this is Abraham's ultimate test of faith. Most of you are very, very familiar with this passage. And it is very, very significant. His first two offspring, his first two sons, God calls calls him to give both of them up. 
not only is it hard for him to give up Ishmael, but now God comes and says, give up Isaac. Now think about this, if you're in his place. If giving up Ishmael greatly distressed him, how must he feel giving up Isaac now? Read this with me. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now that's reminiscent of another son who will come later on, Jesus. Your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham responds, Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants, his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. Abraham is going to worship the Lord. Now look what else he says. And then we will come back to you. Now you say, well, he's going to go sacrifice his son. How can he be saying we're going to come back? Well, we don't really understand that, except if you read later on in the book of Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says that Abraham was convinced that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He had to because Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the next link in that messianic chain. Without Isaac, the chain is broken. But Abraham, in the face of what is absolutely confusing to him, is going to obey God. This is astounding to me. Think about poor Isaac. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he, carried, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went along together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, uh, father, he said, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac doesn't have a clue as to what's going on here. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. Do you see the man of faith? God will provide. Now, we don't, have, we don't have any real understanding of what was going on in, in, in Abraham, but Abraham couldn't look to his left. He couldn't look to his right. He couldn't focus on his circumstances. He had to focus on the Lord. God will provide. God will provide. I'm going to be obedient to him. God will provide. He has asked me to do this thing, and he will provide. Does that help anybody here tonight? I hope so, because that's what it's meant to do. We're meant to be encouraged. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached, can you imagine Isaac? I mean, there's no, there's no clue here. Wait, Dad, what? What? <laughs> he is the perfect picture of the submissive, sacrificial lamb, isn't he? Did Jesus fight? Nope. He said, I give my life. No one takes it from me. Isaac is a wonderful picture of Jesus. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on the top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know, now look at this sentence. Now I know that you fear God, 
because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, your most precious possession. God says, love me with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Does he not? And he asks us to entrust everything meaningful, everything significant, the most valuable things that we possess to him. That's what he's asking. What are the hardest things for you to give up to God? What are the easiest things for you to give up to God? Think about that. Think about that. And lay all those things on the altar. Lay them on the altar. Can God be trusted? Well, we logically say, well, certainly he can be trusted. But it's a whole other uh, issue when we try to engage that objective reality subjectively. Well, but God, I, that? You want that? You want me to trust you with this area of my life? Yes. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Can he be trusted? Yes. Is he in the blessing business? Yes. Does he have our best interest at heart? Yes. Is he in the business of restoring and healing and taking that which was broken and making it whole again? Yes. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram, placed it in the burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isn't that glorious? Absolutely. Turn over with me now to, to chapter 23. We see Sarah's death and burial. She was by this time. Abraham went and he mourned for her and he wept over her. She lived to be 127 years old. A good woman is hard to find. A good man is hard to find. Especially today. And when you see two people who've come together around the Lord, as did Abraham and Sarah, when you see these two people learning to trust God and mature together, you have a blessed relationship. A blessed relationship. So Sarah is buried. And then we see now Abraham is alone. And before he dies, he's got to make arrangements now for Isaac to be married. He doesn't want Isaac to marry with any of the women from the nations surrounding them. And so he's going to arrange for Isaac's marriage. This is absolutely one of the most beautiful pictures in the entire Bible. This is one of the most beautiful accounts that we'll ever read in the entire Bible. The choosing of a wife for Isaac when, when Abraham sends his servant Eliezer of Damascus to uh, uh, a faraway land, to his, to, his, to his family's place, and uh, Rebekah is chosen. It's absolutely glorious. We're not going to read the whole account. I just want to point out a couple of things I think are significant. It's a picture, if you will, of an all-knowing, all-loving, all-gracious, all-providing God working in and through on behalf of his people. God knows exactly what we need in every situation. But beyond that even, it's a delightful picture of 
the Father sending the Holy Spirit. Abraham would represent God the Father. Eliezer would represent the Holy Spirit. Going in search of a bride for the Son. The bride, of course, is Rebecca. We know now that, that we are the bride of Christ, the church. And it's a, just an absolutely beautiful picture. But I want you to see in, in chapter 24, verses 10 through 14, the servant, what he does. He leaves Abraham's presence. He has this commission to go find a bride for, the, for Isaac. The servant took ten of his master's camels left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening and the time the women come out to draw water. Notice what he does next. Then he prays. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please uh, let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. I mean, this woman is going to be quite a gal. Then let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now before he finishes praying, the Bible says that God knows what we have need of even before we ask. So before he even finishes praying, Rebecca comes out. She comes out with this jar on her shoulder, and we're told that the servant hurried out to meet her and said, please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. And she quickly emptied her jar in, into the trough and ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. How many camels did he have? Ten. You know how much water ten camels drink? Oh, this is a good woman. The first one. He doesn't have to do trial and error and go through this whole process. The very first one he approaches. She says, oh, sure, you can have a drink. Oh, and by the way, I'll water all ten of your camels, too. And she runs to get the water. Look at, look at his he, He's going... <laughs> You think, you think Eliezer is blown away by this? Yeah. I do. Absolutely. Then we're told when the, when the uh, camels had finished drinking, he's, he speaks to her to find out who she is. She tells him who she is. She get, reveals her identity. Look what next, next happens. The man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Eliezer is absolutely dumbfounded by what God has done. He is blown away. So they, they make this deal, and I want you to see this in chapter 24, the last part, verses 52 to 61. After they make the deal, they're getting ready to leave. Look at this. When Abraham's servant heard what they'd said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. Here's the bride of Christ being given brand new garments. Do you see the picture there? This bride who's going to be given to Isaac 
is clothed with brand new garments and given jewels and decked out for her husband. That's you and I. It's a picture of you and I as Christians, as members, as part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So they go on their way and so forth, and, and uh, finally Isaac sees her, and uh, they marry. In chapter 25, we read about Abraham marrying again. This is astounding. Uh, you remember that uh, he was about 100 years old. His body was dead. He was impotent. There's no way. God restores him. He restores Sarah's womb. They have Isaac. When God heals, he heals really well because Abraham is going to live to 175. He's going to have a whole nother family by this woman Keturah. And so that's recorded for us that we might see that and see God's grace. He dies when he's 175 years old. Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years he was gathered to speak. This guy lived a full, full good life. You know why? Because he believed God. Because he believed God. That's very instructive for us. You want to live a full life, a blessed life? Believe God. Believe God. Now we come to the story of Esau and Jacob. So Abraham passes off the scene. Isaac now is the patriarch. Everything passes to Isaac. Now we're told that he's married to Rebekah for 20 years before she becomes pregnant. Rebekah is barren. Finally, Isaac gets it into his head, maybe I should pray for my wife. He prays for her and she conceives and God blesses him not with one but with two children. And we see this in chapter 25. Now Isaac is 60 years old when Rebekah gives birth to these two children two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now I want you to notice something in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 25. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man. So they had entirely different temperaments. These two guys were as different as night and day. But notice what comes next. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, in other words, their father loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You see favoritism developed by the parents over those children. And that's going to create some real problems. Later on now, we find that Esau is going to sell his birthright. Esau is the number one son. It is a common practice that the birthright, that the blessings be passed on to the number one son, that the number one son get uh, uh, twice the inheritance that any of the other sons would get. So all of this is due to Esau because he's the number one son. However... We're told that Rebecca, while she's still pregnant with these two boys, is told by the Lord that she's going to give birth to two, but the younger is going to rule over the older one. And hence, Jacob now is going to be the heir. Jacob is going to be one that God sovereignly chooses to pass on the blessing, not Esau. Now, if you read chapter 9 of Romans, Paul writes about God's sovereign choices and he says in that passage that Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Just by comparison, uh, not that God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob more. He put his mark on Jacob, and he's going to pass on the heritage to Jacob. It's his choice. 
It's not dependent on what either one of those boys would do. It's not dependent on what they would deserve. It's God's sovereign choice. And so God chooses Jacob. Now, in order to ensure this, Jacob, later on, as they grow up, Jacob is cooking some stew one day. Esau, his brother, comes in from hunting. He's famished. And Jacob, his mom has probably already told him that he's going to be the heir. But he, I think, just wants to have a little insurance. And so Esau comes in. He says, what are you cooking? He says, oh, some stew here. And he says, give me some. And Jacob says, well, I'll sell you some. Well, what do you want for it? Your birthright. Not thinking, probably, that Esau would agree to it. But it's worth a shot. Well, how about your birthright? Esau looks and says, yeah, sure, okay, it's cool. You can have my birthright. Just give me some of that stew. And Jacob is blown away. He says, whoa. We get some insight into both of their characters. See, Esau is a guy who... The writer says, despised his birthright. He's a guy that didn't care about the higher things of God. He didn't care about the future. He was a guy who lived for the moment. That's all he cared about. Just, just satiate my needs right now. He had no vision for the future. Jacob has a vision for the future, but he's got to get in there and try to ensure it. Now, this is just going to only go to serve more problems later on. He's got to learn to trust the Lord, and he will after much tribulation, many of us finally learn to trust the Lord. Now, if you go to chapter 26, we find that Isaac is blessed. I think this is significant. He planted crops in the land the same year. He reaped a hundredfold because the Lord had blessed him. Isaac's, Isaac was just a blessed man. And whenever he planted, God just made sure he had a hundredfold harvest. Not thirtyfold, not sixtyfold, not anything less. A hundred, a full harvest God gave him. And then the time comes for Isaac, who is old, he's going to pass off the scene. He's got to pass the blessing. Now, we don't know if he knows about what God said to Rebekah, that the younger would rule over the older, that Jacob would rule over Esau. We don't know about that. We're not told. Maybe when God revealed that to Rebekah, maybe she held it in her heart. Maybe she just treasured it in her heart, didn't tell anybody except maybe Jacob. But either way, we find that that Isaac is going to attempt to bless Esau. He's going to attempt to pass the heritage on to Esau. And as he does so, Rebekah overhears the conversation. So she runs and gets Jacob and says, Quick, quick, your father is going to bless Esau with your blessing, the one that's supposed to go to you. You better go and get some, some, uh, some lambs, some goats. We'll prepare them while Esau is out getting some game. And then we'll, put, we'll disguise you, and you go in, and you convince your father you're Esau, so he'll bless you. And jo- what does Jacob say? Jacob says, yeah, 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 Mom, that's a great idea. He says, no, Mom, that's not a good idea. But she still presses the issue, and he succumbs to her pressure. That's going to open some doors for some real problems. Trust the Lord. What would have happened if Rebecca and Jacob had trusted the Lord? What would happen if Rebecca had overheard Esau saying, oh, by the way, Esau, we're going to bless you? What would happen if she had said, Lord, you're going to have to take care of this? Well, we can't speculate too much because we don't know what would happen. So anyway, Jacob deceives Isaac, 
And then Esau comes back. He finds out what's happened, and he is ticked off. I mean, he is so upset. We're told at the end of that section that he's going to kill his brother Jacob when his father dies. He is really upset. So Jacob's got to flee town. He's got to get out of town. Rebecca says, you better get out of town. Your brother is really upset. Go to my brother Laban's house. Uncle Laban. Go meet Uncle Laban. Now you know what happens there. He finally gets there. And uh, I'm, I just, I'm ab- absolutely amazed about God's grace. We get ourselves in such terrible jams, such terrible situations. You read the account. He's there 20 years. He goes there. He falls in love with, with um, Rachel, Laban's daughter, Rachel. And so he makes a deal. He says, I'll work for you, Uncle Laban, for seven years. You let me marry Rachel. Laban says, sure, good deal. He works seven years. Laban pulls the old switcheroo. The night of the wedding, he presents the older daughter, Leah. Now, how possibly, how possibly he could have got away with this? I don't know. I mean, Jacob has got his eyes on Rachel, the younger daughter, for seven years. He's got every, everything about her memorized. And on the wedding night, he's presented with Leah, takes her in the tent, sleeps with her, is married to her, doesn't have a clue until he wakes up in the morning and he goes, oh, you're not Rachel. That's astounding to me. That's astounding to me. How would he not know? Well, you know, I think probably Rachel and Leah probably had very, very strong resemblance to each other. The Bible just says that, that Rachel wasn't, didn't have the strong flashing eyes. She probably wasn't as, uh, as temperamental as Leah. Leah was probably more a gentle-spirited woman. And she reflects that in the passages you read as the sons are born. She's a very gentle and gracious woman. And in fact, Jacob does fall in love with her. It's a beautiful picture. But Uncle Laban just gets another seven years of labor out of him. And then on, on top of that, he gets another six years of labor uh, just, to, just so that Jacob can accrue enough flocks and wealth so he can leave Laban. But I want you to see something. You read the account on your own. We don't have time to, to really go into it in depth. But something I think is absolutely astounding is that we tend to look at his whole experience as punishment. Laban t- or, uh, Jacob typically is looked at as, as the conniver. He's always trying to slip in there and get a good deal and, and, and fake, fake, you got, fake you out. He did it on his brother. But you know what? If you read the account, nowhere ever does God rebuke Jacob. Nowhere ever is it recorded that God castigates Jacob. Now, I'm not advocating that we should be connivers. But what I'm saying is that God loved Jacob. And he only comes and affirms to him his promise to bless him. The promise is not based on what Jacob does or doesn't do. God is working in Jacob's life. God is going to fashion Jacob's character. 
God is going to heal and mold and, and do the things in Jacob's life that he wants to have done. So he's not going to come and, and condemn him and rebuke him and do all these things. He just says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And even in Uncle Laban's house, God blesses him. God blesses him. And when he leaves, you see that he leaves with tremendous flocks, wealth, children, family, servants. God has blessed him. Now on the way, there's one particular incident I want to point out. It's in chapter 28. Abraham is on the way to Laban's house. He goes to sleep one night and he has this dream. And the dream is a ladder. He sees a ladder reaching from earth to heaven. And God's at the top of the ladder. And he sees these angelic beings traversing this ladder, coming up and down, up and down, up and down. What to make of that? What does that mean? I think it's a picture of God's great care for his creation, God's great care for mankind, and really God's great care for Jacob. That he's sending ministering angels, ministering spirits, up and down, up and down, taking care, providing for, protecting. Jesus picks up on that picture in um, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 51. When, when he speaks to Nathaniel. You remember Nathaniel was a man who was sitting under a fig tree, praying, thinking, pondering. Jesus refers to him as, this is truly a man without any guile. And Jesus picks up on this picture of this ladder, and he says that he is, in effect, the ladder. He says, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the avenue for the ministry that God does to us on our behalf, through us. Jesus is that avenue. And you have this picture way back here. Jacob gets some insight, a little bit of insight into his role and what God wants to do for him and indeed through him. And he, breaths, he, he praises the Lord, he thanks God for it, and he says, I will give you a tenth of everything. So we are introduced to a response of thanksgiving in, by returning back to the Lord a portion of all that God had given to him. I want to conclude there and urge you again next week. You have your notes, the readings for next week, chapters 31 through 45. We're going to cover that material. We're going to conclude... Jacob's life, exciting event in which he wrestles with God. And he marks Jacob's life for the rest of his life. And then we're going to see the incredible events of Joseph's life. It's an astounding study. So be reading ahead, studying those passages, and we'll come back together next week and talk about them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your plan is sure. I thank you, Lord, as we look back and we read it and meditate on it. God, you show us wonderful things. 
You show us how your sovereign hand is moving and faithful. Lord, your blessings are not dependent on what men do or not do. They're depending on your will. Lord God, we thank you for these examples. We thank you that we can learn from men like Abraham and their life. We thank you that we can learn from people like Lot and his wife to not hesitate, to not look back. We thank you that we can learn from, from Isaac's life and the beautiful picture of your sending your Holy Spirit for a bride for your son. We thank you, Father, that we see Jacob and Esau and the conflict that goes on in that home. We thank you, Lord, that we can learn from Esau's life to be people who don't just live for the moment, but, Father, live for your glory. Father, we thank you for Jacob's life and for the examples you show us in him. Lord, how many of us don't trust you, don't wait on you, but try to speed up and, and bring about the things that you've said you'd do. But Lord, you, you keep working with us. You are so patient. We thank you that you will bring about your promised end. Father, I pray that we would see and know and understand these things intimately. We'd make application of the principles reflected in these passages. Lord God, we bow before you tonight. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Have your way with us. Teach us to value, teach us to love these examples. Lord, teach us to learn from them. Teach us to apply these things. Lord, I pray they not just be intellectual exercises for us, but our lives be significantly marked. Lord, these are serious enough, significant enough events for you to have recorded for all of us to know about. And you mean for us to learn from them. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you. We love you tonight. Keep your heads bowed for just a couple moments. There may be some people here tonight that something of what we've said may apply.